0: So the book's in the Old Testament. Uh, It's written about 950 years before the coming of Jesus. And it's part of a literary genre known as wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is all about the art or how to live well in God's world. Uh, The book itself is a song. Uh, It's a love song. So it's a bit like an ancient version of Ed Sheeran's Perfect or John Legend's uh, All of Me, only this song is the song of songs. So it's the greatest of all songs. It's God's inspired song about sex and romance and marriage and desires and intimacy. And what the song is doing in large part is it is contrasting the way of the world when it comes to love, sex, marriage, with God's way and His original design or intent for love, sex, marriage, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, because it's poetry, it's communicating truth, but in a particular way. Uh, It's not a book that's examining love like a kind of science project or experiment looking at love from the outside in. Uh, it's, It's a book that's describing the experience of being in love, of enjoying love and sex and marriage from inside the experience itself. So for example, there are two main characters in the song, an idealized man and an idealized woman, and in the part of the song that we're in this morning, they've just gotten married. Uh, she is a country girl from a town called Shulam, and he's a shepherd boy who's become her lover and husband. But you see, if this was an historical narrative, the book might have started like this: In the days of King Solomon, there was a country girl from a town called Shulam who met and fell in love with a shepherd boy. But this isn't an historical narrative; this is poetry. So if you open to the start of the Song of Songs, you'll notice it starts like this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. You see, what it's doing is it's communicating truth about the goodness of love and marriage and sex and intimacy, but through the words of the subjective experience of what it's like to desire and enjoy those things. And because it's poetry, the song uses lots of metaphors, similes, figures of speech, analogies. And our job as readers is to try and figure out what the metaphors, analogies, figures of speech mean. Make sense? Okay, with that in mind, hear now God's Word. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, and I'm going to read all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. This is God's Word. I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound, my beloved is knocking, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I'd put off my garment, how could I put it on? I'd bathe my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt." I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I'm sick with love." What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold, his locks are wavy, black as a raven, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool, his cheeks are like beds of spices, Mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God for help. I'm going to pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that every single portion of your word is breathed out by you, that it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray now as we look at this portion of your word that you would open our eyes and show us wonderful things. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, A number of years ago, uh, I read a book by a guy called Christopher Ash, a British guy, and in it he recalls uh, the story of how a number of years ago, uh, there was a dispute in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. And the dispute centred around which British ambassadors would be provided with a Rolls Royce for their official duties when serving in a foreign, foreign capital. Now, you can imagine, not surprisingly, the Treasury wanted the number of these uh, luxurious, expensive, extravagant cars restricted, limited to just a few people, mainly those who were serving in the most prominent capitals, like Washington or Moscow or, or Paris. But the Foreign Office argued that a lot more cars should be provided to those British ambassadors working in foreign capitals. And it's not what you think. It wasn't some sort of dodgy, scandalous motive that drove their proposal. It wasn't about you know, government officials lining their pockets, politicians being politicians. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, their reasons were much more profound than that. You see, the Foreign Office argued that most people living in a foreign capital have never been to Britain. But when they see these magnificent cars gliding through their streets with the Union flag on the bonnet, they'll say to themselves, "I've not been to Britain." I don't know much about Britain, but if they make cars like that there, well then Britain must be a wonderful place. One of the things that makes marriage between a man and a woman so remarkable, according to the Bible, is it's actually intended by God to point beyond itself, a bit like the Rolls-Royce, to a deeper reality. So so earlier in our service, we read from Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about marriage and the roles of husband and wife, and he quotes Genesis 2, referring to the first marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But then he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, So marriage is a shadow That's intended by God to point forward to a deeper reality. In fact, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. That first marriage and every other marriage in this age is intended by God to point forward to the relationship between Christ and his people in the age to come. Where we will live with him in a world that will be unimaginably good. Where we will live quite literally happily ever after and death will never separate us. What do we do with the fact that in this age, if we're honest, our marriages are very often messy. Wouldn't it be true to say that if you're married and honest, need both of those things, there are times when a day in the life of your marriage, if it was recorded and displayed on the screen behind me for all to see, people might walk out of here this morning and say to themselves, I've not been married, I don't know much about marriage but if you can make a man and a woman act like that, well then, marriage seems like a pretty awful place. A couple of years ago, uh, a guy called Paul Tripp, a biblical counselor, wrote a book on marriage, which I've not read the whole thing, but the title is very telling. I've read the title. Um, The title is, What Did You Expect? Uh, When Narelle and I got married. Uh, the day we were due to fly out to our honeymoon, I woke up at 4am with this horrific pain in my gut. Uh, we were staying in this little uh, cottage, this little cabin, and the bed was, uh, let's say, was way too close uh, to the toilet for me to wake up one day into marriage with an enormous pain in my gut. I must have thought, please let her be a deep sleeper, please let her be a deep sleeper. Uh, as we were driving to meet our parents, one of them was going to take us to the airport for the honeymoon. We Uh, had to pull over and I projectile vomited on the footpath much to the disgust of a morning runner. We finally got to the airport where we then boarded JQ flight, this can't be happening, to the Gold Coast where I proceeded to vomit my way up the east coast of Australia until we arrived in Kingscliff, and I spent a good portion of our honeymoon feeling rather seedy. Not what we were expecting. More seriously, we've argued. Sometimes we've argued so much we've forgotten about what we were arguing about and just burst out laughing. Other times we've argued about things too painful to forget, even if we tried. You see, everyone who gets married, enters into marriage with expectations about what life will be like with this amazing, wonderful person. But sooner or later, at least some of those expectations won't be met. And depending on what they are, that can be painful. A number of years ago, I met with a man who told me that he and his wife didn't consummate their marriage on their wedding night, which was hard. What was harder was that one night turned into one week and one week became one month and one month turned into one year and there he sat years into marriage and they'd never consummated it. We meet and fall in love, and even though we know cognitively that no marriage or person is perfect, as you hold hands and look into each other's eyes and say, I do, you feel pretty confident that the person you're marrying is at least perfect for you. And again, you're pretty confident that while other marriages might have their struggles, those struggles won't be yours. But whether it's a day, or a week, or a month, or a year. Eventually, Tim Keller points this out, it's very helpful. Eventually, every married couple learns three things. One, you learn that the amazing, wonderful person that you're married to is actually a massive sinner and pretty selfish. Two, you learn that they have been learning the same thing about you. They realize that you're a massive sinner and you can be pretty selfish. And three, even though you know that you're a sinner and can be selfish, you're pretty confident that your partner's selfishness and sin is worse than yours. You see, the truth is, marriage, a bit like parenting, has this unique ability, doesn't it, to bring to the surface things that weren't obvious to you or your spouse before you got married. Keller quotes a theologian, Stanley was, who once said, we never know who we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now if all that seems just a wee bit too realistic for the idealistic view of sex and marriage and romance that we've seen thus far in the Song of Songs, I want you, if you've got your Bibles there, just go back to where we left off last week. So go back to chapter 4, end of chapter 4, start of chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 16, she says, remember, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spices, I ate my honeycomb with my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. That's poetic language that's passionate but not pornographic. They've just gotten married and they are clearly consummating the marriage. But now look at this morning's passage. Chapter 5, verse 2, we start a new poem, she's inside in bed, he's outside in the rain. He wants to come inside but not just to come to bed, not just to sleep to make more love. And she's not saying, notice, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. She's saying, I've had a bath, I'm in bed, the garden's closed, sorry, not sorry. (laughs) See, for all the beauty and joy and romance and ecstasy of the betrothal and marriage that we've seen thus far in the Song of Songs, they are now learning how to love and care for the stranger, or at least... The person to whom they now find themselves momentarily estranged from in marriage. So remember a couple of weeks ago, Sam pointed out how our, our culture has just made such a, a mess of things like sex and romance and marriage and love that it's like we, we, we've basically broken those things into like a thousand different pieces, a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. And part of what the Song of Songs is doing is it's giving us. A picture, like the the picture that you get on the box of the jigsaw puzzle, that that helps you to put things back together. But here's the thing, what this poem in the song shows us, is that even that picture still depicts brokenness. Because we are living in a post-fall world. So yes, the song presents us with a picture of love and sex and marriage that's idealistic with all of its garden imagery which takes us back to the Garden of Eden and reminds us of God's original purposes for sexual desire, and marriage. But the picture is still profoundly realistic because no married couple is living in a pre fall world of the Garden of Eden. And that means that all of our marriages, even the best of them, We'll struggle at times with sin and selfishness and self-centeredness and disappointments and fears and insecurities and unmet expectations. There's a guy called Ian Dugwood, we might have heard him mentioned in previous sermons, Uh, he's written a number of really helpful things on the Song of Songs. If I say anything helpful from the passage this morning, it probably has, it's Genesis in something he's written, he's been very helpful in preparing this sermon, but he points out this, he says, the Song of Songs is a poem about two idealized people, a man and a woman, whose exclusive and committed love is great, but like all loves in this fallen world, is far from perfect. Thus, the song described, is designed rather, to show each of us how far short of perfection we fall, both as humans and as lovers, and to drive us into the arms of our true heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, whose love for His bride is truly perfect. So what I want to do in our time this morning is I want to just walk our way through the passage, uh, unpacking, explaining as best I can at least, the metaphors, the analogies, the the word pictures along the way. And then what I want to do is I want to finish by drawing out two lessons for us and show how the poem drives us to Jesus. Make sense? Okay. If you've got your Bible there, keep it open. Chapter 5, verse... Two, the song starts, notice, with the woman sleeping, but we're told her heart was awake. I take that to mean that this whole passage is a dream. Now, I don't know if you're a person who can remember dreams, but if you can, you'll know that uh, there are some things that are characteristic of dreams. For example, in dreams, people just tend to show up and disappear, they vanish. Uh, in dreams, you can be in one place, one minute, doing something, but then in the next minute, you can be in an entirely different place, doing something completely else. Well, just look down in verse 7 and notice that when the woman gets beaten by the watchman of the night, I'll explain more about what that means in a moment. Interestingly, the only other time these watchmen have appeared thus far in the song was back in chapter 3, and the woman was dreaming. So when the woman is beaten by the watchman at night, the daughters of Jerusalem, notice, just appear out of nowhere. And then the, the watchman vanish. And she doesn't mention anything about the fact that she's been beaten. They don't ask her how she is. Uh, she simply asked them how to find her husband. And if you look down in chapter 6, start of chapter 6, you'll notice that by the time they've agreed to help her, she somehow now knows where her beloved is and she's all of a sudden transported away from the city and the daughters of Jerusalem to a garden where she's back with her lover. It's very odd and the whole thing just seems like a dream. But it's a dream that's intended to depict a reality that every married couple knows. It's a dream about the reality of our desires not always aligning. A dream about fighting and making up. A dream about fears and insecurities and doubts in marriage. A dream about conflict and remaining committed. A dream, About having the honeymoon end, even if it's still on the honeymoon, and yet learning how to live happily ever after. And the dream starts, notice, with her in bed and him outside in the rain. Why? Well, the poem doesn't answer that question. Probably because they're having some kind of argument, and all of that sweetness of. Uh, Blossoming love that we've seen so far in the song in springtime has now been overshadowed by the cold of relational distance and for the husband notice, a cold night, a dark night rather, in the rain. Now we don't know what caused the argument, Uh, maybe he was too pig-headed to ask for directions on the honeymoon and they wasted half the day getting lost. Uh, Maybe he's missed a special day or date in their relationship, maybe they planned a romantic evening and He lost track of time at work and got home late. Maybe she's just having trouble leaving and cleaving. Maybe she talks more to her mum than she does to him and that's causing issues. Maybe they're just having trouble settling into married life together and all the changes that it brings. Or maybe the argument was about something much more painful than all of those things. We're not told what it is but whatever the case, Notice, he wants to reconcile, he wants to recapture and resume the emotional and relational and frankly, physical intimacy that they enjoyed on the night of their wedding and she does not want a bar of it or him. So, so there he stands, he's, he's knocking at the door and she is not even trying to pretend to make an effort. She gives, I think, two of the lamest excuses for not responding to the advancements of her husband That you could possibly give. Verse 3, I'd put off my garment, how could I put it on? I'd bathed my feet, how could I soil them? Uh, In the 90s, there was a band called, British band called Take That, some of you might know the band from uh, Robbie Williams's early days, this was a band that he was a part of before he became a a solo artist. In the mid-90s, they released a song called Back For Good and at one point in the song, they sing a line that goes like this, in the twist of separation, you excelled at being free. That's a danger, I think, isn't it? That conflict comes in marriage, and one person in the marriage, slowly but surely, maybe it's almost imperceptible at the start, but slowly but surely, they begin to withdraw until finally they excel at being free. One sign. That you're headed down that path is actually a pattern of prolonged withholding of physical intimacy from your husband or wife. Talk more about that later, but for now, just remember this is love poetry. So, so I don't think we're supposed to imagine here like a 30-second a scene where all the husband says is open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one and then he checks the handle of the door, verse 4, he notices it's locked and the young stag from chapter 3 turns and walks away, a bit like Eeyore, I imagine, into the night. I think we're supposed to realise that these verses are indicative of what was said and done but not all that what was said and done. I think we're supposed to imagine him on the other side of the door, being more persistent, tenderly pursuing her, rattling the door. Please, honey, he's saying, let me in. Now, we're not sure why, but notice eventually, he's rattling at the door, causes a change of heart. But by the time she's no longer, uh, by the time she rather has the change of heart, he's no longer on the scene. Look at verse 5. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So she's out of bed, she's put on perfume, she's ready to engage, but he's not there. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. And notice what she doesn't do. Uh, She doesn't say, typical, off he goes again. So like him. Don't know why I got up, don't know why I bothered. No, she loves him. She wants to reconcile with him. She wants him to know that she's committed to him. And so she heads out into the danger of the night to find him. I sought him, verse 6, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And as she's out in the night, in the city, she comes across two groups of people. The first is the watchman of the city, whose job it was to keep the city safe and secure at night. Now, at one level, this whole interaction just seems bizarre, very strange. So just think about it, she's she's ran out of the house quickly, she's probably not dressed that well, they probably mistake her for a woman of the night, and so they beat her, bruise her, and leave her exposed. What on earth is going on? Well, at another level, you have to remember, this is a dream. So this didn't actually happen to her. But it is, I think, getting at some of her deepest and darkest fears and insecurities in that moment. Just think about it. If you're a woman in the ancient Near East and you found yourself estranged from your husband, that could lead to particular dangers. That could lead to physical dangers. That would lead to potentially sexual dangers. And you would not only just feel condemned, you would probably be condemned in the eyes of the community around you. I think that might be what's happening with these watchmen, these community police, if you like, whose job it was to keep things safe and secure. Uh, When they find her, they beat her and bruise her because it's like a picture of how she's feeling. She's feeling in that moment insecure and condemned. But then she comes across another group of people. The daughters of Jerusalem, and she pleads with him, notice, to help her find her husband. Look at verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So notice that the message is, is not, the message she wants to pass on isn't that she's been beaten or bruised, the message is basically, I want you, I need you, please let's reconcile, I'm sick with love. Now, if you look at the passage... And compare what the daughters of Jerusalem say in verse 9 of chapter 5 with what they say in the start, verse 1 of chapter 6. So look at the passage, compare those two things. Notice carefully that before they ask where the woman's husband might be, and they do that down in chapter 6, notice there, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned, that we may seek him with you? Before they ask questions of where, they first ask questions of what? verse 9, what is your beloved more than another? And notice they address her with the same words that he's addressed her earlier in the song, O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another that you should thus adjure us? Other translations put it like this, what makes the one that you love better than another? Most beautiful of women, what makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? Now some think these, these questions are asked with some kind of hostility, like they're mocking her, man. what makes him so special? I actually don't think that's the case. I think they're coming alongside of her and those questions are designed to help her to remember who her husband is and the kind of relationship they're now in, because that's going to help her address the fears and insecurities that she now feels. I remember a a number of years ago, I was talking with a good friend of mine, he lives over in the States and we're just catching up about life and ministry and marriage and uh, he, he just shared out he, he and his wife were having uh, conflict they weren't really getting anywhere and so uh, he called a mutual friend of ours they jumped in the car they went over to uh, that guy's place and they basically just said kind of mid-conflict just said here's what we're going through counsel us like how would you encourage me as a husband to love and serve my wife better how would you encourage me as a what, what are we missing here they'll basically say I was like, really? you like, middle of the argument, you just went over, that's a lot of transparency, you just went over to the house and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, yeah, brother, if, if you don't have other people who really know you and really know what's going on in your marriage, you will only ever have a marriage as good as the two of you can figure out. All of us need friends who can come alongside, ask good questions and help us to see and remember things that we might forget. And that, I think, is what these daughters of Jerusalem are doing here. And so from chapter 5, verse 10, notice, all the way to the end of the chapter, we get this long description from the wife about her husband. So she begins, verse 10, by just kind of giving a, a, a general overview of his appearance. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Basically, she's saying that in his eyes, or her her eyes rather, he's a picture of health and vitality and masculinity. In her world, he could be the face of Hugo Boss or Calvin Klein or Dolce & Gabbana and when they're in a crowded place, her eyes naturally go to him. Distinguished among 10,000. And now notice she gets more specific. She starts describing from the head and works their way down to his feet. His head, verse 11, is finest gold. His hair is black and long and wavy, verse 11. His eyes, verse 12, are like doves beside streams of water. As she looks into his eyes, she sees gentleness. And the colour of his eyes, the black of the pupil, just pops against the backdrop of the white of the rest of the eyes. Notice that, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks, verse 13, are like beds of spices, likely referring to a well-kept, sweet-smelling beard. His lips are lilies. His arms, verse 14, rods of gold. His body is polished ivory. His legs, verse 15, are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. So notice, his his head is gold, his arms are gold, his body is bedecked with precious jewels, and his legs are set on bases of gold. That is, his feet are gold. So from head to toe in her eyes, he is gold. And he is very precious to her. He looks good. He smells good. And he even tastes good, verse 16. His mouth is most sweet. And he is altogether desirable. He's one who, as commentators point out, if you compare uh, his description of her back in chapter 4 with her description of him here in chapter 5, he's one who is like her, different. They're both beautiful in one another's eyes, but their beauty is different. He is a strong, stable, masculine, hers, graceful, gentle, feminine. They're a complementary pair and they've come together in the covenant of marriage, this one flesh union. This is my beloved and this is my friend, she says, "O daughters of Jerusalem. She has married her best friend. And now notice that by the time she's finished describing her man, the daughters of Jerusalem now ask a second question. Where is he? Where has your beloved gone? Where has your beloved turned that we may thus seek him with you? But notice that now that she's thought about and contemplated who he is and the kind of relationship they're they're now in, that they enjoy as husband and wife, she now, interestingly, knows where he is. She doesn't need their help anymore. She's in, I think, a different place emotionally and in the dream that leads her to being transferred to a different space or scene physically. Chapter 6, verse 2, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather the lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved's, beloved rather, is mine. He grazes among the lilies. In other words, she is now right there with him. She's back with him because, remember, in the song, her body is his garden. And though sin had temporarily separated their enjoyment of each other, they're now back together as one. Ian Dougwood writes this, the nature of the woman's eureka moment might not seem immediately obvious to us. In fact, If we'd been the daughters of Jerusalem, we might be tempted to ask, which garden? What lilies? But if we connect what she is saying with the rest of the song, it becomes much clearer. She herself is his garden. When he described her body, the man spoke of her breasts as twin gazelles grazing among the lilies. And the phrase, my beloved is mine and I am his, he grazes among the lilies, comes directly from her own words in 2.16. In other words, the woman is saying... I've been out in the streets desperately searching for my beloved as if he were lost forever. But he is not lost. We belong together. And even if we sin against each other, there is a bond between us that can never be broken. My beloved is mine. And I am his. Well, that's the passage. Two lessons for us. Or implications for us. Number one, every marriage covenant in this age is going to experience conflict. Every marriage, without exception, is going to experience conflict. For all the idealism that we've seen so far in the Song of Songs, here's a poem that gives us a healthy dose of realism about the realities of marriage in a post-fall world. He desires her but she doesn't desire him. She desires him but he's not on the scene, he's nowhere to be found. One minute it's springtime and the sun's shining on their blossoming love, the next minute he's out in the the dark, standing in the rain. But that's the reality of marriage in a post-fall world. I used to live in Melbourne and Melbourne, as you probably know, is pretty famous for having four seasons in a day. Some of you might feel that way about your marriage. You wake up, it's summer, but then you say something dumb or insensitive or just plain sinful and the leaves begin to change, they become like a broody dark purple and now it's autumn. You try to talk about it, it doesn't go well, winter arrives. But then, by God's grace, you stick at it, you keep pursuing, you keep loving and by the time It gets to evening, it's springtime again. But here's the thing for some people, that plays out so regularly, so often, that they just get tired of sticking at it. And when that happens, spring and summer and autumn can quickly get swallowed up by winter. And living in a marriage like that can be heartbreakingly tragic and the desire to pull away can be very, very strong. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you love anything, your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in a dark casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, Safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Some of you might know just what he's talking about. Part of what this poem shows us is that the real threat your marriage and my marriage is not conflict per se, because conflict is inevitable for every marriage no longer in Eden. The real threat, I think, is letting conflict lead you to withdraw from a marriage so that you master the art of functioning well in a marriage that's become dysfunctional. Yes, the desires of this married couple in the poem don't meet in this passage, Yes, there's, there's conflict and tension and selfishness and self-interest, but they are, notice, quick to pursue, eager to reconcile. They don't let the sun go down on their anger. They keep pursuing until they're back together as one. You see, because God's marriage is God's idea, and because it's His good gift to us, He calls us to conduct ourselves in particular ways as husbands and wives in marriage. And that means that how you treat your spouse, your husband and wife, is never, ever simply a matter of your horizontal relationship with them. It is always, always also a matter of your vertical relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, every marriage covenant will experience conflict. That's part of this picture of marriage that's depicted for us in the song. But we must be very careful that as much as it depends upon us, we don't learn to become good at functioning with relational distance between the two of us. Because in order to do that, at least one of you must learn how to function with relational distance between you and God. That's the first lesson. Second, number two every marriage covenant, including yours, will only be rock solid and white hot if selfless love, not self-love, lies at the heart of it. And that's only possible if your life and marriage, only possible rather in your life and marriage, through the transforming power of the love and grace of Jesus. In a culture that's hell-bent on self-expression with little regard for God or others, hell-bent on self-love, it's little wonder that most marriages are neither rock solid nor white hot. But this passage reminds us that at the heart of every marriage should not be self-love, but a selfless love that's profoundly other person-centred. And that should shape in just multitudes of ways everything about how we Think about and approach marriage. It should transform the way we approach everything in marriage, including our approach to physical intimacy. I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 16. So if you've got your Bible, just flip it back to Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to compare carefully what the woman says there with what she says in this passage in chapter 6, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine and I am his, he grazes among the lilies. Now look at chapter 6, verse 3, you notice it's almost verbatim, word for word. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, he grazes among the lilies. Almost the same, but not quite quite the same, she's made some changes. She's reversed, notice, the order. It's not my beloved is mine and I am his, it is I am my beloved's and he is mine. And that change probably indicates that she's come to learn something important about selfless love in marriage. Doug Wood points out, this reversal of order is significant because it was precisely the failure to remember that I am my beloved's that triggered this whole episode. She was reluctant to get up and open the door because she was thinking only of herself and her own desires. She was thinking, my body is mine and it belongs in my comfortable bed right now, forgetting that her body actually belongs to her husband, just as his belongs to her. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does." Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again. To be clear, I think the really shocking thing about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 is not that the wife's body belonged to her husband, basically everyone in the first century Greco-Roman world thought that. This is not a passage that's like diminishing the the value and role of wives and women, no this is Paul elevated. The really shocking thing was that the husband's body belonged to his wife and that she should give her her conjugal rights. Paul's words aren't laying a foundation for a husband to abuse or misuse his wife or her body. He is actually calling wives and husbands to love one another with a selfless love. And part of what that means is that what you should find most satisfying in marital intimacy is pursuing the satisfaction of the other. Uh, Tim Keller has a great book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, and in it he has this great little section, this meditation, where he contrasts uh, basically a a world's approach to intimacy, which is driven by self-love and desires, selfish desires, with the Bible's picture of intimacy in marriage, which is driven by selfless love. Here's what he writes... Many people believe that if you have sex with your spouse just to please him or her, it would be inauthentic or even oppressive. And this, and obviously this quickly leads to a vicious cycle. If you won't make love unless you're in a romantic mood at the very same time as your spouse, sex will not happen that often. This can dampen and quench your partner's interest in sex, which means that there will be even fewer opportunities. Therefore, if you never have sex, unless there's great mutual passion, there will be fewer and fewer times of mutual passion. He goes on to write, one of the reasons we believe in our culture that sex should always and only be the result of great passion is that so many people today have learned how to have sex outside of marriage. But this is a very different experience than having sex inside of marriage. Outside of marriage, sex is accompanied by a desire to impress or entice someone, it is something like the thrill of the hunt. When you are seeking to draw someone in, you don't know. It injects risk and uncertainty and pressure to the lovemaking that quickens the heart and stirs the emotions. But this defines sexual sizzle in terms that would be impossible to maintain in any case. See what he's saying? You you approach it like that, sure, you, you get successful. Then what? Eventually, the sizzle is going to fizzle if you stay with one person. He says, the fact is that the thrill of the hunt is not the only kind of thrill or passion available, nor is it the best. You see, sex in marriage, he writes, means making love sometimes when one or even both of you are not in the mood. But sex in a marriage done to give joy rather than to impress can change your mood on the spot. The best sex makes you want to weep tears of joy not bask in the glow of a good performance. The best sex, of course, can't be reduced to what happens in the bedroom. If you're here this morning and you're married, I want to encourage you to go on dates and cherish one another and keep giving each other knowing looks and be kind and patient in the midst of trials and conflicts. Stay friends. Speak sweetly to each other. Spend time in God's Word point each other to Jesus, pray together and stay together. In a healthy marriage marked by selfless love, neither the husband nor the wife will simply insist on getting their own way. But both will count the other more significant than themselves. Yes, God made sex to be physically desirable. But our greatest desire, friends, in life and marriage should always be to live in a way that pleases Jesus. And that means we won't make sex a tool to be used for personal gain in the midst of conflict. We won't sulk or manipulate or pressure or roll over in a huff or storm off into the night when our desires don't always align. Instead, we'll stay and we'll love with a love that is both sacrificial and selfless because we have a savior a lover a friend who has loved us just like that Phil Riken writes this in his commentary Jesus started to show you his love when he came knocking on the door of your heart Revelation 3:20 behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Even when you turned your back on him more than once, he came looking for you. Heedless of all danger, he was willing to endure every kind of abuse up to and including crucifixion. From heaven he came and sought you. To be his bride, he bought you. And for your life, he died. Knowing exactly what kind of sinner you are, he writes, Jesus nevertheless was willing to fight for your love all the way to the cross. He did this because He loves you and because He wants to have a relationship with you that will go on forever and ever. This is your lover, this is your friend. When you experience the loving friendship of Jesus Christ, you are free to become the kind of lover who isn't selfish and the kind of friend who doesn't run away from a conflict. Instead, you do everything that you can to make things right with the people you love no matter the cost. Friends, the point that Christopher Ashe was making in that opening story was simply this. May the world look at our marriages and say I've never seen Jesus. I don't know much about Jesus. But if he can make a marriage like that, if he can make a a man and a woman love like that, if he can make them so selfless in their love, so sacrificial, so profoundly other-person-centered, then this Jesus must be good. And his death on the cross, in the place of a sinner like me, must be true. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sick,